So he greatly uh, introduced the topic of our study uh, this morning. We're continuing our study in John 18 on the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, this is what Pastor J.C. Rao has written in his commentary in the Gospel of John in this section on John 18. Pastor J.C. Ryle, Mark what I say. You may know a good deal about the Bible. You may know the outlines of the histories it contains. You might know about the dates of the events described. You may know the names of the men and women mentioned in it. But if you have not yet found out that Christ crucified is the foundation of the whole volume, you have read your Bible to very little profit. He's talking about the, about the centrality of the cross to our Christian faith. Without the cross, your religion is a heaven without a sun, a compass without a needle, a clock without springs, a lamp without oil. Without the cross of Christ, rightly understanding it, it will not comfort you. It will not deliver your soul from hell, just like the story described. Mark what I say again, you may know a good deal about Christ by a kind of head knowledge. You may know who He was and where He was born, what He did. You may know His miracles, His sayings. You may know how He lived, how He suffered, how He died. But unless you know the power of Christ's cross by experience, unless you know and feel within that the blood shed on that cross has washed away your particular sins. Unless you are willing to confess that your salvation demands entirely on the work, depends entirely on the work that Christ did upon the cross, Christ will profit you nothing. The mere knowing of Christ's name will never save you, He said. You must know His cross. You must know His blood or else you will die in your sins, end quote. It is again the urgent and crucial need of every non-Christian. At the same time, the urgent and crucial need of every Christian. A biblical, personal, experiential, intimate knowledge of the cross of Christ Jesus. It is the watershed knowledge for non-Christians. Same time for believers as well. It will determine whether we will waste our lives or we will invest it for God's kingdom and for God's glory. This is the joyful pursuit that we are engaged in and we will be for next several months. Let's go to our passage, John 18, 1-11. I'll review uh, some of the info from last week. Verse 1, John 18, when Jesus had said, spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Again, He is leaving Jerusalem, proceeding on an easterly direction. He goes down the Kidron Valley, and He ascends the Mount of Olives. And on that Mount of Olives that overlooks the city of Jerusalem, there is an oil press, a place, a cave that's hewn into the mountain where they will bring olives in and they will press these olives to make olive oil. 
knew that Gethsemane, Olive Press, was a garden. And Christ would often lodge there with the disciples, spending his time alone in prayer, meditating, spending time alone with the Father. Verse 2 tells us that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Of course, Judas would know. He was one of the chosen twelve. He knew where Christ went each evening when the crowd dispersed. Judas knew that he would go there because each night during Passover near Jerusalem, that's where they had spent uh, their evenings. So verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas went to the leaders of Israel, procured a band of soldiers, fully armed, and led this mob to betray the Lord into their hands. It is not the Lord's enemy. It is not a stranger that is doing this. It is one of Jesus' Twelve chosen disciples. You know, Jesus is not surprised at the sight of Judas leading this mob. Verse 4 begins by telling us that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He knew what Judas would do. He, this was not a surprise to him. To all the disciples, I'm sure they were confused. They were shocked. They were surprised at the sight of Judas betraying their Lord into the hands of the enemy. The Bible doesn't say this. So it is pure conjecture on my part. But if I were to guess, I would say that Peter was not aiming for Malchus's neck when he swung his sword. Conjecture. But if I'm a friend of Christ and I see Judas doing this, it's very plausible. It makes sense. That the neck that Peter was aiming for was Judas's neck so incensed, so angered, that one of their own would betray Christ in this way, in this manner. But for our Lord, it was not a surprise. In fact, He had predicted this very thing a few hours ago, right before um, the day turned into night, right before evening, in John 13. If you would turn to John 13, our Lord predicted... Uh, Judas' betrayal. Uh, we studied this passage uh, maybe a year ago, more than a year ago. Um, John 13 is uh, Apostle John's lengthy account of what happened in the upper room on the night of our Lord's arrest. By this time, Judas has already betrayed Christ in the hands of the leaders of Israel. His conspiracy has already been put into action. He has already negotiated a sum with which he would hand Christ over to the leaders of Israel. Having done this, Judas came back, blended into the group, pretended nothing unusual happened, and he was waiting for an opportunity for him to betray Christ. Verse 2 tells us, the devil put it in the heart of Judas to betray uh, Judas to betray Jesus, but it was Judas, Judas's heart. He is not a victim. He, he was a willing instrument of Satan himself. His heart was so hostile to the truth, 
so filled with evil that he was a willing participant. It was at this very point that our Lord gave the apostles a lesson in humility by washing their feet. He washed the feet of all twelve. That means he washed Judas' feet in John 13. Judas, knowing what he had just done, knowing what he will do, knowing that there is nothing but hypocrisy and evil and vileness in his heart, sat there, allowed the Lord to get on his knees to wash his feet. Here is the world's worst sinner, the world's best hypocrite. Peter, on the other hand, is incensed. He refused to allow the Lord to wash his feet. He sensed his, not just human unworthiness, but spiritual unworthiness, because Peter understood this was the Son of God, the thrice holy God, the Son of God. How dare, how, how can he allow, this, allow God to wash his feet? Peter said, never. Our Lord replied, verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter replied, And not only my feet, my whole body also, my hands and my head. Jesus replied, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. And look at verse 10. You are clean, but not all of you. You are clean, but not all of you. Some of you guys know this game. We play at retreats, the game of Mafia. Right, randomly, some people are assigned as uh, killers, murderers, whatever, trying to figure out who they are. Um, this is the ultimate game of mafia. They're sitting there, 12 guys, and just says, one of you is not clean. Silence. They're starting to look at each other and wonder, who is our Lord talking about? Who is He pointing to? Who is the one that will betray the Lord? Verse 18, Christ said again, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He will shame me by betraying me. A a friend, a brother, someone who shared a meal with me will betray me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. In verse 21, our Lord makes an even more explicit prediction about the impending act of betrayal. He was troubled in His spirit. He testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. You can't get more plain than that statement. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain, verse 22, of whom He spoke. They were all perplexed, all confused, except for Judas. Judas knew that it was him. Matthew 26:22, a parallel passage tells us that each of them began to probe and examine their own hearts. They were exceedingly sorrowful. They were overwhelmed with sorrow at this statement. And each of them, one by one, began to say to the Lord, Lord, is it I? Is it me? Am I the one that will betray you? I don't think it was just pretense. It, was just, it wasn't just 
social consideration. I think all these men understood the different degrees, their own sinfulness, their, their own cowardice, their own fear, their own... Uh, well, just how easily they are led astray by temptation. They asked the Lord, Is it I? Am I the one that will betray you? Verse 25, Matthew points out that Judas also asked, Rabbi, is it I? But for Judas, there was no self-examination. There was no probing of his heart. He was doing that. He's a good mafia player, right? He's doing that just to deceive the disciples and even deceive Christ, not knowing Christ knows all. Apostle John in John 13 concludes this way, giving us more, gives us more information. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So it was Apostle John. He was sitting next to Jesus, leaning upon him. And Peter is seated next to John. So Peter nudges him. Ask. Ask him who it is. I'm dying to know. So John, being, being loved by Christ, being close to him, leaned against Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus told him, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. The man I give this bread to, he's the one who will betray me. John, I want you to know so that when it comes to pass, you will know that I am the Son of God. He dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas. And Christ said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Other than John, no one knew why he said this, said this to him. Verse 29, some thought, that, some thought that because Judas had the money back, our Lord was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Right here, the day of salvation closed for Judas. Divine mercy gave way to divine judgment. Jesus sent him away. And we know that Judas went straight from the upper room to the Sanhedrin. He reported to them that the final breach had been made. He knew where they would be under the cover of darkness. And he finally found an opportunity for Christ to be betrayed. That was Judas waiting for. He was waiting for a time where Christ would be alone without the crowds. Luke 22.6 He sought an opportunity to betray Him to them in the absence of a crowd. He knew the popularity of Jesus. He was afraid of the crowd. He was waiting for this time when Christ would be alone and He found it and soon as he did, he went to Sanhedrin to follow through on his evil plan. So this is how Judas is leading this mob of soldiers and this crowd of people to betray the Son of God with a kiss. This is how we have come to verse 3 of John, John 18. Before we move on to verse 4, Let's pause for a few minutes here. And uh, um, there are so many lessons from the life of Judas, but I just want to point out to you two lessons 
from Judas' life. Two things we learn from Judas. Now we learn from good examples and we learn from bad examples. And so this is not a case where we learn from a bad example. And you can't get much worse than Judas. This is the worst example found in the scriptures. Highlight to you two lessons. First is that Judas is but the first of countless false believers. Judas is just the first of countless false believers, false disciples, false Christians, hypocrites, pretenders, who feign an external Christianity, but in their hearts there is no genuine faith. We ought not be surprised. We ought not think, wow, this is New Testament. How could this happen? This is ages ago. This is different culture, different geography. No, he is the first of countless that continue today, even here at Cornerstone Bible Church. That the church today, not just our church, but church in this country, church throughout the world, the churches are filled with false Christians. Filled with false professors. Filled with people who think that they are Christians. But indeed, they are not. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, Welsh pastor, past century, in his testimony said this, For many years, I thought I was a Christian, when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see that I had never been a Christian when I became one. I was a member of a church, attended my church faithfully, and even served regularly, but I was not a Christian. John MacArthur said, quote, Judas is a prime example of a false believer. For three years he followed the Lord with the other disciples. Outwardly, he appeared to be one of them. Yet while the others were growing into apostles, Judas was quietly becoming a vile, calculating tool of Satan. Whatever his character seemed to be at the beginning, his faith was not real. He was unregenerate. His heart gradually hardened so that he became the treacherous man who sold the Savior for a fist full of coins. In the end, he was so prepared to do Satan's work that the devil himself possessed Judas. End quote. Judas is an example to all of us that involvement in ministry doesn't mean you're a Christian. It tells us that knowledge of the Bible, knowledge about theology, reading of many books, Going to church really doesn't mean you're a Christian. Example of Judas tells us that we should not presume that we are Christians or others are Christians because they have a time of decision. Because they've signed a dotted line. They've walked the aisle. They've felt something. They've been baptized. All these external things can be imitated by false believers with expert accuracy. So we shouldn't presume these things are signs of true faith. Judas had a testimony. He did. He had a point where he externally turned and decided to follow Christ. Yet he was not a Christian. Judas' life is a warning to all 
who think that they are believers by these criteria, involvement in ministry, scriptural knowledge, time of decision, or having assurance of salvation, whatever that means, these do not of themselves ensure that one is a true Christian. And I fear that there are multitudes, multitudes like Judas in the contemporary church today. One pastor said that 85% of Americans profess to be Christians. 85%. And he said, continued by saying, that the greatest mission field in America is professing Christianity. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody follows Christ. Everybody has some form of faith in the Lord. They are friendly to Jesus. They like Jesus. They like to be called Christians but they are not committed to Him. They do not believe in Him. And so they are capable of the worst kind of betrayal. So we ought not be surprised. We ought not be naive. You know, we want childlike faith. You know, we want to believe in Christ, believe in one another. But we don't want childish faith where we throw out discernment. We throw out a probing of the heart, ourselves and others. We throw out biblical discernment. Second lesson from Judas's life is the lesson of the awful, awful power of sinful desire. The awful power of sinful desire. The always devastating effects of sinful desire that is not mortified. I mean, we're not, there must have been a combination of things that motivated Judas to betray Christ. But the scriptures highlight one key component in his sinful motivation. Right? You understand? There must have been a thousand and one things that motivated him to do this. I mean, just, but the Bible highlights one overarching motivation that prompted him to betray Christ. And that is the sin of greed. Sin of greed. In John 12, Apostle John records this woman Mary, who was a prostitute, coming to wash the feet of Christ, and she broke a, she broke a, a alabaster jar of perfume, and with it washed the feet of Christ. And one disciple particularly was angered by this act of worship, and that was Judas. And Judas reasoned. Why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. John adds in verse 6, He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was, in a way, the most trusted guy. He was a treasurer. He was the accountant. Guy above reproach. Who trusts, who's the most trustworthy with the money? We trust Judas. So he was in charge of the money bag, and yet his heart was full of greed. He helped himself to it. He was a thief. And this was his motivation for betraying Christ. Sin of greed. First Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
in the pursuit of material gain, Judas descended into deep depravity. Judas' life is a living illustration of the corruptible power of greed, of loving money. John insists that it was this greed that finally overwhelmed him and caused him to betray Christ. Somewhat anticlimactic. You want some awful, insidious, inhuman motivation that caused Judas to betray Christ. But it was something simple as greed, lust for money, love of money. That's why it makes it so, so scary, so horrible, so frightening to all of us. Because it's common to man. It's a, a sin that we can all understand, that all can sympathize with. Judas is not some horrible human being, like evil, incarnate, like that we have a hard time understanding. Judas, his heart was much like our hearts. I'm sure you guys know about this, the accounts of the Nuremberg trials. These um, victims, the concentration camps, had an opportunity to testify against their prisoners, against the wardens, against uh, the, the, the leaders who conspired to torture and murder millions of Jews. When they went to the trials, many of them, they, uh, they, went, they, they went crazy. They, 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 they became frantic at the witness uh, chair because when they looked across the courtroom and saw these evil men, they saw that they were normal. They weren't. They didn't have horns in their heads. Right? They weren't red-faced. They weren't these evil-looking men. They were just regular people. And they saw themselves in these uh, torturers as well. They saw the commonness in their humanity. Well, likewise with Judas. Judas was just a regular guy who was told that it's impossible to serve God and money. And Judas said, that's true. I love money. I love money. I'm going to live for money. I'm going to try to get all I can. He is a heart-stopping illustration of the power of not just love of money, but love of anything in this world. Love of anything. For you, it might not be money. For you, hey... You know, money doesn't really tempt me. But it's not just money, but love of anything, love of any sinful desire, how it devastates our walk with Christ. It's a graphic example of the devastating effects of sinful desire. I mean, what always leads us away from Christ? What always leads us towards sin and more sin? What can ultimately lead us even to betray the Lord? It is sinful desire. It is fleshly lust. It is cravings after this world. James 1, 14, 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by, let's always said a demon, but by his own desire. We are tempted by ourselves, by our own lust. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full, fully grown, it brings forth death. James 4, what causes quarrels? and What causes fights among you? Is it not your passions 
that are at war within you, you desire and you don't have. Therefore, you will even murder. You covet something you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3.5, put to death, mortify, destroy what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desire, covetousness, all these are heart desires for the world. Base things, and he calls them idolatry. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love this world, do not lust after this world. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, 1 Timothy 6.10 The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil. Money is neutral. Right? But the love of it is. And it has devastating results for anyone who has succumbed to that desire. Right? For Judas, it was money. What is it for you this morning? What competes with Christ in your heart? Is it money? Maybe it's marriage, right? pursuit of marriage. Maybe it's ministry, right? one of the occupational hazards of entering into ministry is ministry can e- easily become a sinful desire. Right? It can easily become a sinful desire. Many have lusting after ministry, have denied the Lord. What is it for you? Could it be pleasure? Could it be praise for man? Could it be a desire for power? What about friendship? Fame? Maybe a simple thing as fun? You desire entertainment so much that you must have it. Non-negotiable. Devastating result is to lead you to deny Christ. Now, all these things are part of life, but at any time, when we become fixated upon it, where it consumes our hearts, it's great danger to our souls. Great danger. I mean, we think to ourselves, how can Judas do this? I mean, Judas saw the miracles. He saw the beauty of Christ with his own eyes. He saw the mercy of the Lord. How could he do this? Because... When we are fixed on sin, when our eyes are fixed on our sinful desires, we are blind to Christ. Christ is in our blind spot. I, I got my eyes checked this week by Mike, and uh, you know he, he puts you in a machine and tests your peripheral vision. So every time you see a white dot anywhere on the screen, you know you click on this machine and tells you you did it within the time frame where you really see it. So for me, I'm very competitive. So for me, it's not an eye exam. You know, it's a, it's a it's a test of my hand, eye, eye hand coordination. So I wanted to get perfect score, right? So I was like focused. I had to do an extended test for some reason, and I think I got pretty good score. I think maybe top ten in Cornerstone. <laughs> and then, so he was showing me my chart of my eyes, my left and right eye, and he says, "Oh, here is your blind spot." What do you mean, my blind spot? There it is. He said, "That is your blind spot." And uh, you compensate with each eye, but in this session you can't see anything. 
And I, you know, I didn't know it was a literal blind spot. I thought it was like, you know, peripheral vision. But it's literally a spot where our vision is impaired. Or well, likewise, with our vision of Christ. At any time, there's anything in our hearts that we must have. And it could be something very mundane, very generic. Right? It could be sleep. Right? It could be you know, a friendship. It can be good things like family or ministry. But if we lust after this, must have it, at that instant, we are blind to the beauty of Christ. Truth of Scripture. I mean, you've experienced it. I've experienced it. And we see it in Judas's example. How is this possible? Well, because he became fixated on 30 silver coins. If he kept his eyes on Christ, he would see 30 coins. That's nothing. Well, that's, what am I thinking here? We've done that. But when our eyes are fixed on sin, we become blind to Christ. Now, let me just spend a few more minutes here. Um, you know, I thought about this. I need to apply this to my own heart. And so I'll just share with you some of my applications on how I want to apply Judas' example to my own life. And I thought to myself, how can I um, turn away from things that compete with Christ? And how can I fix my eyes on Christ? So first, three applications are, how can I um, turn away from these things that tempt me to stray away from Christ. Number one, repent of every known desires. Repent of every known desires that are consuming my heart. So what do I, what is it in my heart? What do I must have in my heart? I need to repent of it. That's a silly illustration, but for me, it's, it was my lust, you know, like a few weeks ago, we were having um, premarital at 2 o'clock, and I'm hoping we'll be done by 3.30, and then I can go play ball with the guys, right? So for me, like, you guys know my flesh, right? I enjoy playing sports on Sunday afternoons. And so it's at 2 o'clock, I'm like, let's go, let's go. Okay, premarital, not that important, right? <laughs> you know, it's just all in the Bible, you guys read it later. <laughs> it's 3 o'clock, and then it's still going, and Mike's asking more questions, and it's 3.30, and there's a war going on in my heart. I mean, literally. No one knows except for my wife and I. My wife knows my heart. And I'm like, let's end it. It's not that important. But I'm telling somebody in one heart, James, this is primarily your ministry. You're a pastor, right? <laughs> you love these people. It's God's word. But my heart's like, man, I had a long weekend. I've, I've been giving myself for the ministry. All I want is two hours a week. Can I not have two hours a week? That's my flesh. So repent of every known desire in your heart. Agenda. Must haves. Right? Repent of these things. By God's grace, I repented, went home, and nice quiet dinner with my family. Secondly, ask God to search your heart. Ask God to search your heart. Test your thoughts. Psalm 139.23 Third, ask others to point out your blind spot. Ask others. Ask your family. Ask your friends. Ask your Bible study leaders. What do you see? Do you see any sinful desire in my life? Right. And acknowledge you have a blind spot spiritually. So a spiritual doctor will come next to you and say, yes, that is a blind spot. You don't see it. You just don't see it. 
but it's there. Humble yourself and acknowledge. Acknowledge that. Three things that will help you fix your eyes on Christ. Three things that will help you fix your eyes on Christ. Number one is the church. Or the church. Someone asked, if you're stranded on a deserted island, what three things would you take with you? And someone said, Cornerstone Bible Church. Oh, I like that. Right, that's a good answer. Right, why would you want Cornerstone Bible Church at a deserted island? Because God's church helps us to fix our eyes upon Him. The church helps us. The church is the body of Christ. So when we're in fellowship with the church, when we come to church on Sunday, when we go to flock, when we meet with believers, it helps us. It reminds us. It awakens us from the things of this world, the things of Christ. Second is uh, godly friends. Pursue godly friends. Treasure, cherish, and guard godly friends. Pray with them, evangelize with them, serve with them, share scripture with them. Just like be with them. I love being with godly men. I feel stronger. My vision is clearer. My life purpose is stronger. The temptation is weaker. When I'm just in the presence of godly men. Number three, I mean simple, read the Bible. Memorize scripture, be in the word. Do these things in the cross of Christ will be more desirous for all of us. The beauty, the wonder, the love that is displayed on the cross would help us to fix our eyes upon Him all the more. Well, that's the example of Judas and his applications to us. But let's go back to the text and, and the progression of this drama, the passion of Christ towards the cross. Verse 4a, then, know, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he knows everything, he's omniscient, he knows exactly what was going to happen, he wasn't hiding, he went out from the gate, met them with, when they were on their way in, and here again is the outline from last week, four considerations, four truths in our Lord's betrayal and arrest. Four truths. Point number one. Let's consider the Lord's courage as He faced the cross. Lord's courage. Jesus then, therefore, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? This is the majestic courage of our Lord. What magnificent boldness He displayed in going to the cross for us. He initiated the confrontation, not Judas. Judas, he didn't even have an opportunity to open his mouth. You know, Saddam Hussein feigned all this courage and bravado, all this loud exclamations out what he will do to the to United States and the soldiers, and he was found hiding in a spider hole on the ground, right? Being dragged down in his, in his underwear practically. Well, what about Christ? They brought torches just in case Christ would hide from them. No such thing. Judas ran to the battle line, ran to the front line, and he cried out, Whom do you seek? Yes, in Gethsemane, three times in weakness, in tears, he went to the Father, Can this cup be taken from me? But when the answer was given, there was no more tears. 
No more wallowing, no more struggle or sorrow. He got up out of his knees, onto his feet, and he walked to his enemies, towards them. He rose from prayer, did not wait for Judas, did not wait for them to approach him. He advanced to the line of battle and met them head on with strength and conviction. He approached them said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. In the Greek, there is no he. He just said, I am. Judas was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. I mean, they they felt the force of his words. Our Lord was telling them, You have no power over me. You have no authority over me. Other Gospels dwell on our Lord's agony, on His knees on the ground in anguish, but not in John's Gospel. We see the glory of Christ. Our Lord is standing, and the Roman army is on the ground. A secret, invisible power, no doubt, accompanied the words of our Lord. In no way can we account for a band of Roman soldiers, highly trained, falling over on themselves to the ground. That just does not happen. A real miracle is wrought here. The few eyes had, few had eyes to see it. Here is a single, unarmed, lonely figure, and there was an army before him, equipped and manned for war, and he simply spoke his name, and they fell. There flowed from our Lord such commanding power and authority, they could not even stand up to him. Arthur Pink said it was a display of His divine majesty, a quiet exhibition of His divine power. It was a single demonstration that He is the Word. He did not strike them with His hand. He struck them with His Word. End quote. You see, our Lord's courage, second consideration, is the Lord's willing advance to the cross willing advance to the cross, the willingness of Christ to suffer, His readiness to go forward to the cross. He was laying His life down. No one was taking it away from Him. In John 6, 5, when they tried to take Him by force and make Him king, what did He do? He ran away. He fled. He hid from them when they wanted to make Him king of Israel. But when they wanted to crucify Him, He went joyfully. He went voluntarily. He went willingly. Many skeptics have presented our Lord's death as a sad story. The quirk of fate, an unexpected death of a good man as a victim of a cruel death. The Bible uniformly proclaims, no, our Lord's life was not taken from Him. He gave it up. He offered it up. John 10, 17 and 18. No one takes my life. I lay it down. Remember Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus and he said, you will not answer me. Do you not realize I have the power to free you or crucify you? That's what Pilate said. Talk about lunacy. Height of pride and arrogance. Jesus responded, you have no power over me unless it was given from above. What do you know about power, Pontius Pilate? 
That power that you have was given to you by the supreme power, my Father. In fact, it was our inner Trinitarian transaction by which I voluntarily came to be incarnate, to be a man, to die, and to die on the cross. You have no authority. I have authority. And with my authority, I have chose, I chose to die and to die on the cross. Let us remember this. Let us remember that all the soldiers of the Roman army could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. Not a hair on his head could be ah, singed or broken off without his consent. Let us remember that he willingly, joyfully went to the cross to secure our salvation. We saw, we've seen the Lord's courage, willing advance to the cross. Verse 8, B, verse 9, let's consider the Lord's tender care of His disciples. Lord's tender care. He asked them again, while they were getting up off the ground, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. Now here's, this is powerful and beautiful. You might have missed it. But this is a beautiful scene. The enemies on one side, eleven disciples on the other, and Jesus is in the middle, and he's interceding on the behalf of the disciples. You have me, let these men go. Jesus is the good shepherd. He places himself and lays himself down on behalf of the flock. He does not want the disciples to be captured, to be arrested. Why? Because our Lord is so good. He will not allow them to be tempted above that which they are able to bear. He knows the exact amount of suffering, trial, pain, discouragement, disappointment, temptation that they can bear. And He will not allow them to be tempted beyond that point. And He knew right now these 11 cannot handle being arrested, cannot handle being punished, being tortured. Yes, Peter did say, I will die for you. Peter was full of such confidence. But Christ knows Peter. And in three, you know, a few short hours, He will deny him before servant girls. He knows that if they were to be arrested now, their faith would be shaken. Their hearts would be devastated. Therefore, He protects them. You have me. Let these men go. Even at this critical moment when His own unspeakable sufferings were about to begin, He did not forget the little band of believers who stood around Him. He remembered their weakness. He mercifully makes for them a way of escape so that not a hair of the disciples' heads was touched. I mean, he's beaten, spat, crucified, tortured, dies on the cross. His disciples, nothing happens to them. Absolutely nothing. While the shepherd was slaughtered, the sheep were allowed to flee away unharmed. So that's what a, what a comforting truth for all of us. Whatever you're going through, whatever sufferings, temptations, trials that you are experiencing, Christ has measured it out. And it's not beyond your ability to stand up under it. 
at the retreat, right before the retreat, I was talking to Frank, uh, and you know, he's, he recently got a job a few months ago, and I go, what do you do? What do you do for work? And it was fascinating. He says that his job is to administer radiation to cancer patients. So I might, I might get the details wrong, but I think the substance is right. The doctor says the patient has cancer, so he gives him a dosage of how much radiation to administer to this patient. But if you give this kind of radiation all at once, the patient could die or kill healthy cells or be ineffective. Right? So what he does is he measures out the radiation and goes at the cancer from different angles. Right? Because if it's too much, it will be harmful to the patient. If it's too little, it's ineffective. But Frank's job is to measure out perfectly in the right dose, right angle, so that it destroys the cancer, but no harm to healthy cells. I said, wow, what a perfect illustration of how the Lord tailor makes sufferings, trials, temptations, so that He might cut out sin in our lives. Right? Cut out selfishness. Cut out pride. To destroy all the evil lusts that are in us. He applies enough pressure Enough harsh to destroy those things, but yet never too much or it will overwhelm us and cause us to be weary in our pursuit of Him. That is exactly what our Lord did here. He did not allow them to be tempted above that which they are able to bear. He held the winds and storms in His hands. He did not allow His disciples to be utterly destroyed. He kept them in His hand. Let us lean our souls on this precious truth that as Christ so cared for the disciples, their souls, He cares for us. He cares for you. He cares for me. And He's doing that today. That He watches tenderly over every one of His children measuring out this exact amount of cure to give that we might grow in Him. Lord's courage, Lord's willing advance, Lord's tender care. Verse 10 and 11, Lord's perfect obedience. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, can this cup be taken from me? The cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's indignation, having the experience of being separate from the Father on the cross, being forsaken by Him. Father, I love You. I do not want to experience Your anger. Is there any other way? Can this cup be taken from me? Three times he prayed, he received his answer. So when Peter tried to intervene, our Lord's response was, Shall I not drink this cup when it's the Father's will? Our Lord was saying that he was going to drink this cup full of wrath. He was going to drink it to the bottom, drink all of it in obedience to the Father because he was submitted to the Father. He willingly drank the cup, modeling for us perfect submission.
all the drama that we see here just in verse 1 through 11. But there is so much to come. In the weeks to come, we'll see him before the high priest of Israel. We'll see him before Pontius Pilate, Roman soldiers. We'll hear the crowds cry out, crucify him. And then we'll see the blazing center of the glory of God as Christ hangs on the cross and dies on our behalf. Oh Lord, we pray that more so than the example of Judas, that the example of your Son, Jesus Christ, be foremost in our minds. May His courage grant us courage. May the model, example, the picture of His courage going to His enemies be an example to us to live boldly for the cause of Christ. Oh Lord, may His willing voluntary death on the cross be a model to us that we would live our lives in joyful obedience to you that we would not consider your commands burdensome but we would consider it our highest privilege that we can know you and live for you and serve you oh Lord we would consider Lord the awesome way in which you care for us your tender care affection for your people not allowing us to be tempted beyond what we can bear may this truth this morning I know there are many here who need this truth may it comfort us may it be uh, a sweet uh, medicine to our souls encouraging us we feel that it's too much we feel that we're going down for the third time. We fear that we cannot hang on, but we know we cannot say you are not good, you are not faithful. We can say you are sovereign and whatever uh, portion is allotted to us is for the purpose of our sanctification. And may the model of your perfect obedience, perfect submission be a model to us that you desire us to obey and the hard areas, the difficult parts, the areas that are particularly weary for us, that we would obey in that area unto you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise with us.